This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That I cannot believe I'm getting the chance to say this, but I'm joined on Football CFB today by one of the the most legendary figures in English football history, Laurie McMenemy. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Callum. Thank you very much, and uh, hope you're well in Scotland. Yeah, just keeping as safe as possible, and and I'm sure you're the exact same. I'm interested to get your thoughts, Laurie, on. The, the rumoured restart of football, the, the finances, should the Premier League help the lower leagues? What's your opinion in the whole situation at the moment? Well, it's apparently to me now, it's getting football in particular, all team sports are getting pushed further and further into the background. I think the general public are accepting that this is the least one of the least important things, is more important. I mean, Having said that, today as we speak, you're able to play golf now and tennis. But of course, I can understand that. But uh, when football starts again, I think we're all starting to think it will be quite a long time because uh, no matter what you say, it's a contact sport. And even if they're going to play without a crowd, you've still got to have lots of staff around on the day. And um, I think... Uh, it could be a long way off yet You're right that it could be a long way way off and for lower league clubs the finances are, are very difficult I know you've been, been open um, in recent times about you think the Premier League should maybe consider helping the, the smaller clubs Well I said uh, a while ago I do a little column in the local newspaper here and when it all started I suggested because um, we were reading about, I think was it Wigan, one of the lower division clubs, were talking about going under even at that stage, and I said would, it would be good if each Premier League club contributed five million pound. I mean that would be a hundred million, which I thought would be fantastic for the lower division clubs. Um, but I was speaking to a fellow countryman of yours, Graham Suness, uh, one of my old colleagues, and he rang me up and we were talking about the same thing and he said you know don't forget premiership clubs because the longer it goes some of them are going to suffer and he quoted clubs for instance Bournemouth which is down in the area both Graham and I were uh, are at the moment and um, Bournemouth you see are in the premiership but their gate capacity is only 11,500 yeah. and I think Graham had the fix for their overall income last year I forget the exact, something like 170 uh, million, but about 130 of that was from television. So if the television isn't putting money in anymore, um, how are Bournemouth going to manage, you know, with their salaries and wages and staff and everything else? So it, it, the longer it goes on, it could be affecting every club.
You're right, the fact that it could affect every club, and you mentioned your column there. Um, I really enjoyed reading that, and something else that I enjoyed reading in it in the in the last few months was your opinion on VAR. I know at first a lot of people were for it, but you're starting to think we should maybe reconsider it? Aye, well, uh, yeah, I didn't realise you could read my column where you are, but uh, secondly, I think that the point I made at the time was we've always had, uh, you know, obviously a linesman in particular waving for offside and referees, and these you know, they were always good fit men, but they're fitter than ever now. The, the officials um, and I can't see why we need a machine which is a bit dubious for instance with the penalty did it hit his arm, did it hit his shoulder or whatever and um, I think when all that started and then the delay in the game waiting for it, I didn't think we needed it and uh, I, I honestly think um, with the officials that we have, we should stick with that I must say, my personal opinion is I agree with you. I think that's something that, obviously, up here in Scotland, we, we can't afford VAR, so we're in that position. Um, and, and as I say, it's a, it's a throwback. And, and as I say, I think that that's the way I would go about it as well. And something I'm desperate to ask yeah. you about, Laurie, is Matt Letissi. I interviewed Matt recently, and he, he told the story how you spotted Matt. You sent the, the, the letter to Matt for him to join Southampton. He was very excited, yeah. and then by the time he gets there, you're gone. Can you just explain how Matt was spotted in your role? Well, it, it wasn't his fault I went to that way. Matt, Matt uh, we, he lives in the area still. Um, I speak to him now and again, and um, he was a fabulous player. And how I got him was that there was, uh, when we were based at the old Dell, Southampton Football Club. My secretary popped in one day and said, look, there's a gentleman on the telephone, he's a teacher from Guernsey, and he's got a group of school kids across at Portsmouth Football Club, um, and they're looking around, um, and he's got a while to wait for the return boat back to Guernsey. He wondered if he could get in the bus that they've got and come over and look around the Dell. Well, I knew it wouldn't take long to look around Portsmouth football ground, and similarly, <laughs> it wouldn't take long to look around the old Dell. But I said, yeah, get them over, bring them over. I said, um, uh, when they come, make them a cup of tea. And uh, I said to one of my staff, take them in the little gymnasium we had and do a little bit of training with them and everything. And um, that was it. About a week or so later, I got a letter from this teacher to thank me, thank everybody at the club, and, and to say how delighted he was the way uh, we handled it. And if everybody could help me, he let me know. So I wrote back and I said, I'm pleased he enjoyed it. If ever you see one or two lads you might think are special, uh, let me know. I don't know how long after it was. I got a message from him, two players, uh, Matt Letizier and uh, Graham Lesseau. I said, right, send them over in the school holiday because I had already started what you would call academies now. I call them a youth policy. I'd opened one up in Gateshead, uh, one in Bristol, and there was already one up and running in London, which I took on board. And um, I can tell you how all about that later on if you want. And uh, they, they would train locally with people I put in 
in the in place that lived in those areas. And then in the school holidays, the coaches would bring their best ones down to Southampton and they would join in with the local boys we had on schoolboy forms and um, stay for a week. we put them up to the local hotel and me and my staff could look at them and then I had to make a decision on who to give apprenticeships to. You could sign a schoolboy in those days at 14-year-old. He couldn't go to any other club then. And as I say, you could, they could train in the evenings and then school holidays come down. And then at 16, when they were leaving school, I had to decide if they got an apprenticeship, which was 16 to 18. And then, of course, they were full-time. And then at 18, I had to make a decision, do we keep them on or let them go or give them a professional contract? And uh, so Lasso and Letizia turned up. Um, I gave them, I put them on schoolboy form straight away. You could see that ability. And uh, the rest is history, really. Um, Graham Lasso didn't sign for Southampton then, but um, Matt Letiz did. Uh, Channel Islanders, I was told, don't like to leave home. They get quite homesick. And so I think that was Lasso's situation at that time. And ironically, when he did eventually, I think he went, was it the Blackburn or Chelsea or somewhere like that, and eventually finished up at Southampton. But Matt started there and, of course, was there forever and became a, a legend. I mean, he's called Le God down here still. Very popular. And um, recently, Southampton Hall Club have made three people ambassadors. It's a title, really. It's not a full-time job or anything like that. And uh, two of them were Franny Benali, another lad I signed. He was local. I signed him as a schoolboy. And Matt Letizia and me. So we are the three ambassadors. And uh, But Matt, of course, is, is seen every week in the season on TV. He's been working on Sky now for a long time. You a brilliant footballer. You mentioned the fact he's on Sky, brilliant footballer. You've got Franny as well, another brilliant player for Southampton. You've got yourself as one of the brilliant legendary managers in the club. And and I, and I want to talk to you about how proud does, that makes you and your family that you are an ambassador. I mean, when you got the call, just how proud were you to, to, be, to be asked? Well, to be fair, everybody was uh, impressed and, and happy because uh, the, the club in the old days, you see, Callum down here, was one of the most popular football clubs in the top flight, uh, top two flights, because we're second division at night time as well, because they had a, a board of directors who were all the worldly gentlemen. Uh, most of them had businesses <clears throat> in the area, and they represented the man on the terrace. They never took a penny out, and at different times had to put a few bob in. The chairman, if you look him up, was called George Reader. Very interesting. He was originally from the Midlands, moved into Southampton, was a school teacher, headmaster, I think, but also he was a referee. So weekends, he refereed league games. He went to college with a band called Stanley Rouse. If you look at him, you're too young to remember, he became chairman of the FA. And as I remember it, he, would, he rang George Reader up in 1948 and said, 48 or 49, uh, George, how are you getting on? Stanley here. Uh, you know, there's a cup final on in a couple of years' time in Brazil. Uh, 
have asked the English FA if they could send over a referee and a couple of linesmen to see what the difference is with European type referees. Um, you're, you get school holidays, got a bit of time. Do you fancy it? And of course he said yes. And he went with a couple of linesmen and also to take a team. And there was a picture in the book which I showed him, um, which showed Southampton Football Club running around the deck of a boat with big um, jumpers on and everything. And uh, then he did that. He, he refereed some local games over there. And uh, a couple of years later, he got another call from Stanley. And he said, those chaps in Brazil would like to invite you and your pals back again to thank you for all the good work you did. School holidays, World Cup, yep, we'll have a bit of that. Off they went. Now, all I can think is, after the first few games, the Brazil committee must have got together and said, who's going to referee the final? I wonder if that English fellow brought his boots with him. He refereed the World Cup final in 1950. He was 54-year-old. He... It was Brazil, I think, versus Argentina. It was in the Maracana Stadium. And I, when he sadly, when he was dying, really, I went up to see him in his house, took a book with a picture in, taken of him on the goal line, blown for the final with his whistle in his mouth and his right arm pointing to the dressing rooms. And the crowd seats went one, two, three, four levels all the way up the Maracana Stadium, and the crowd was given out twice. One was 205,000, and the other 215. Biggest crowds ever. It's still one of the biggest grounds in the world, but they've modernized it. I think it's in the hundreds now. But that was George Reader. He was the chairman. Other directors were local businessmen. Uh, Sir George Merrick, he owned half a Bournemouth. He had a castle in Anglesey. He drove the same racing Jaguar car every year uh, with the same number played on. Only went to two away games, Arsenal and Ipswich. Arsenal were owned by the Hillwood family and Cobble family had a brewery in Ipswich. And the two brothers and their mother owned Ipswich Football Club and the Cobbles and the Hillwoods all went to the same school as Sir George Eaton. And that's why he went to see them. And uh, I could tell you a story after story about those days. But that was the sort of club Southampton was, a family-type club. And, um, I mean, I'm jumping the gun a bit because after my, I was appointed in 1973 to take over from Ted Bates, who was the previous manager. He'd been there 18 years as manager, and before that as a coach and a player. <laughs> and in those days, he, the old managers thought they got to 65, they should retire, and um, Ted could have carried on forever if he wanted. And they, they'd had one or two younger blokes over the years, but the board didn't obviously think they might be managers. Um, and then when I came, I, I didn't realise at the time, I'd been recommended by two big managers, Alan Brown, who had worked with the Sheffield Wednesday as a coach, and Don Reedy, who you remember, at yep. Leeds. And they'd recommended me, and I came down and I passed the test in the interview. And um, I took over straight away, even though they gave me a silly title, team manager designate. I think that was to cover them in case I couldn't do it. They took that title off halfway through the season, but 
um, I'd done it all from day one. And the reason was because previous clubs I'd been with, I'd won the league title at four different clubs. One is coach at Gateshead. Um, the manager at Bishop Auckland, we won the league, the league cup, county cup and everything. And I won the league at Doncaster Rovers and I won the league at Grimsby. And I think that's why they stood by me. They allowed me to get rid of the Deadwood and some of the players had been there nearly as long as Ted. And I was able to regroup, started off, bring in, start a youth policy because I wasn't one then. And um, that's how eventually the Letiziers, the Alan Shearers, the Wallace brothers all came in um, because they stood by me. And I was there 12 years. I could have carried on, but I was getting a bit too much, you know, the same thing day after day. And I was running it from top to bottom. And I got a knock on my door one day out of the blue by a man called Mr. Cowie, who was the chairman of Sunderland. And he came knocked on my door and uh, he said they wanted me up there. And uh, it was a most unusual way. And I went up. And, uh, and to be fair, I was paid a hell of a lot more than I would have been if I'd gone, stayed, if I'd even gone anywhere else. And, um, and being in the northeast, I went up. But it was the biggest mistake I'd ever made in my life going up there. Before we, we come to, to the Sunderland story, I have to obviously talk to you about the legendary 76 FA Cup final. You get into that game as a second division club. You're against Manchester United and Tommy Doherty. The media at the time are saying United are a shoo-in. It just depends how many goals they're going to score. They could run up a cricket score if they want. What was that like for you getting into that final? Because you had beaten Villa, Blackpool, West Brom, Bradford and Palace on the way. Were you nervous getting into the final yeah. or did you feel like, we've been written off here, let's go in and show everyone that they're, they're, they're wrong to write us off? Well, the getting back to the, the director standing by me, when um, in 1974, the end of that season, uh, these days I would have been out the door. Because, as I say, we went down. And ironically, you know, we went down with more points than they'd stayed up with. And, and they'd been in the league, I think, seven seasons. And I think we had more points than three or four of those seasons. And the reason was we were the first club in the first division, as it was called then, to, be, to go down third bottom. Up to then, only two teams went down. And ironically, we finished third bottom and then normally we wouldn't have gone, and in any event, as I say, more points. But we went down and the board stood by me. Two years later, off we go to the final at Wembley against all odds. When we won the cup, you made, there's pictures of me turned, and I'm looking up. Everybody thought I was looking for my family and that. I was looking at the directors. They were in the front row of the box. The Man United directors were the other side. And in the middle was the Queen. And uh, she presented the cup. Wow. And some of my oldie worldly directors, tears on their cheeks. <laughs> and I looked up at them and I put my thumbs up and I was really saying thank you. Thank you for standing by me. And that is what I'd like to give you. And um, that was a highlight of everybody's career, really. Nobody expected Southampton to win that day. I think the odds were... I mean, Mick Channon, who you've obviously heard of, Mick Channon is one of the top racehorse trainers in the country. If you remind me, I'll tell you stories about him in a minute. And um, he was organising bets 
as he always did in the dressing room. And the odds against us, he rang my room, he said, Jaffer, have you noticed we are six to one? And I said, what does that mean, mate? And he had to explain. And that's how much people fancied Man United to hammer us. And, um, of course, on the day, it went the other way. And, uh, I mean, Tommy Doherty, you mentioned, another fellow Scotsman of yours. Tommy and I had always sort of gone on. We didn't see each other a lot, managers. In the summer, you got together at Lillishall. Uh, but uh, when we won that game, we were staying up in London anyway, um, win, lose, or draw. We were staying at a hotel called the Royal Garden, which was famous, really, because the England football team stayed there when they won the World Cup in 1966. Wow. We went there, the team, and on the night after the game, we were joined up by wives, etc. And uh, I'd already booked win, lose, or draw to take everybody out to the talk of the town. And, um, of course, winning, everybody was totally excited came back to the, from the ground, quick change, everybody going down to the bus, waiting. They shouted at me, Mr. McMenemy, a phone call for you. So I put my head in one of those little closet things. Hello, Laurie, Tommy Doc here. I said, oh, hello, Tom. Now, this is only like two or three hours after the game. He said, look, I'm just ringing here to say, well done. If I couldn't win it, I'm pleased you did. Ah, oh, dear me, Thomas, I can't believe that. Wow. He said, I'm crying. I'm crying, mind. I said, okay, Tom, I hope you win it next year. And he said, have a good night, and off we went. The next year, if you look, it was either the fourth or the fifth round, the draw came out. Southampton versus Man United. So I rang Tommy up. I said, Tom, do you remember that phone call? Yeah. I said, yeah, forget it. <laughs> and we had a laugh. We drew after... Uh, 90 minutes. In those days, a replay. We went to Old Trafford. After 90 minutes, it was a draw. Extra time, Man United beat us. They carried on and they got to the final with Liverpool. And uh, I rang them up and I said, Tom, hope you win. If you ever look at pictures again, they beat Liverpool. Forget the score. The team got the cup. And then they started to run up to the corner flag, along behind the goal. They came down the far side. And they were joined by Tommy and Tommy Cavana, who was his trainer. And there was a picture of the two of them taking the cup off the players, had a handle each, and they were looking towards the crowd, up in the air, and Tommy was pointing at the cup. And all the crowd thought they were pointing at them, but it was me. I was up on the television on the top of the stand and he said well, I've got it, I've got it now you know." and uh, we never forgot that Tom and I rang him recently to wish him happy birthday and, he, and his wife at first said he hadn't been too well for the last year or two but um, we had a good long chat and uh, we had a good laugh and do you know how old he was? Was he? Oh, 92. 92 wow 92 so he's still there, 92, Tom. He was, for the last few years, going out and about doing like, uh, talks, going on cruise liners, doing the, being the speaker. But he doesn't do that anymore now. And uh, But uh, he sounded uh, you know, just as good as he used to be. 
that's great to hear. And and on that game, <coughs> pardon me, Stokes gets the goal, as you know. You win the game. You've talked there about the celebrations and you talked about the fact you had Mick Shannon and a big character in him himself. I mean, just how did you and the squad celebrate in the dressing room after the game? And after he had mentioned that bet, did he mention it to you again after the game? Um, well, I think the lads were you know, singing and dancing anyway. But of course, what I didn't realise was that they'd all have won a few bob as well. Because <laughs> I mean, don't forget, in those days, they weren't on massive salaries. Um, they would obviously get a bonus for the winning the cup. But um, uh, that wasn't the main thing, winning. But, I mean, it was all part of it. And, and we knew they were going out that night and we really had a terrific night. And the next morning, of course, everybody was half asleep still and the bus was waiting to take us back. And um, the, the families were in a bus behind, the team bus, and the players were nearly all asleep on the bus, put their bags on and sat down. And on the way back from London to Southampton, it's normally a bus about oh, an hour and a half or whatever, and you pass by these little bridges, you know, going over by Twickenham, Rugby Club and all that, and I noticed people up on the bridges. And what they were doing, they were waiting for us to go by. And uh, I said, hey, get the cup out. It was in a big box lying on the deck. And uh, the players took turns to sit at the front of the bus holding the cup up. We then got on the long motorway with nobody around. We then, we knew we were going to do an open-top bus parade, win, lose, or draw, that had been organised. The council had organised a trip uh, route, and it was going to take 45 minutes. So we got back to the ground, got off that bus, went in, got changed, put the gear in, etc., etc., and then the staff and the players and me and my staff got on the the open top bus, and uh, some just sitting downstairs. Uh, some of our family were on, they were downstairs. We all went on the top, open top. And the 45-minute trip took four and a half hours. <laughs> it's the biggest turnout in Southampton history of anything, even the end of the war. And if you see pictures, it's incredible. And it finished up, the bus had to crawl along, Um I remember we passed along a busy, busy street, shops and clubs and pubs, and there was a, a, a gentleman's club. They were all still outside with their pints of beer in their hand, cheering the lads, and one fella was stood there and he didn't have a stitch on. He stood with his arms up in the air, his legs wide apart, not a stitch on. <laughs> and with, imagine the uproar and the lads cheering and laughing as we went by. And it turned out he had bet that we would not win. And he said, if they ever win that cup, I'll stand there naked. And that's what he had to do. And the local paper actually put these pictures in, <laughs> in the paper and they placed the rosettes in a, in a way. It didn't uh, upset anybody. <laughs> and uh, we finished up at the Guild Hall, or the town hall, as some people would call it, and there's a big square outside with lights and lamps up. And um, there was myself, uh, Peter Rodriguez, the captain, Mick Channon, uh, Peter Osgood, you know, some of the bigger names, and little Bobby Stokes, bless him. The lad that scored the goal because he died, you know, yeah. when he was still young. And we were on the balcony outside 
listen to Coco and the cheers, and you wouldn't believe the crowds and crowds. Um, traffic was stopped, everything. Uh, so people were following the bus and gathering up there. And um, we found out afterwards that we shouldn't have gone on the balcony because it wasn't safe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it went on and on for weeks and weeks. I was getting letters. People were having, you know, this sort of dinners that, they, that they've had recently celebrating um, the VE Day and things yeah. like that, street parties. They were having that in Southampton for weeks galore. And I had to turn up with some of the players. It was it was terrific. It went on and on. And it you still get stopped. People can tell you where they were, not not at Wembley necessarily, but they can tell you where they were the day after, you know. That's tremendous. The biggest thing in the club's history, really. Well, as you say, it is the biggest thing in and see with hindsight and looking back at that now, we're in two thousand and twenty. When you look back at that achievement now, does it make you even more proud in a way that obviously you appreciate it at the time, but as time goes on, you think back and go, wow, that was a real moment of history I was able to to help create? Yeah, I think definitely at any stage, a second division club to beat Man United in a final. Because Man United were, you know, bigger, not bigger than they are now, they're one of the biggest in the world, but they were certainly higher up. And, um, it was totally unexpected, and, and of course, what we didn't realise was the cup final was watched on television all around the world. I mean, I was getting letters and things sent. I mean, I was looking in the house the other day. That I've got a long wooden spear, which was sent to me from New Zealand, all painted. Uh, I was getting things from Australia. Uh, we didn't realise we could see it there, the cup final, and... Um, it's uh, it's the only time the cup have ever won the cup. You know, you see, if Man United had won, fine, they would have got a wonderful welcome home and it was great. But it wouldn't have been the first time or the last time. Whereas the Southampton it has been, and I mean, as a manager, fantastic, great. But as, for a manager's achievement, really, I look back at 1983-4 season. Um, we finished second top of the of the top flight then three points behind Liverpool. Now, as a manager, that's a bigger um, career sort of achievement because that was over 42 games. You know, not 38 like it is now, 42 games. To finish second, three points behind Liverpool, I don't think that'll ever happen again. You can win the cup again. You know, they may do that and I hope they do. But to win, to get up top now, it's a different world now. The Premiership to me is divided into like six, eight, six, or seven, seven, six. The top six or seven are the obvious clubs: Man United, Man City, Arsenal, Chelsea. Um, you know, West Ham. Not not necessarily West Ham. Everton. You know, the bigger clubs like that. And the middle Southampton are basically a middle club, the middle six or seven. The bottom teams are usually the ones that have just got promoted. And then you've got smaller clubs like Burnley, uh, Bournemouth, Brighton, who don't have bigger grounds than that, you know. Uh, and that's how I look at it. So the Cup, yes, very, very proud of it. And, um, and the players that played that day are total legends in the area. Absolutely. And you mentioned the, the fact that you finished second in the league and you... 
you're three point, you finished three points behind the great Liverpool team of the 80s that obviously won European Cups galore. One thing I'm interested yeah. to ask you, Laurie, you might not want to talk about it, that's fine. You were also linked with the Manchester United job before Ron Atkinson went there. Was that ever close? Um, it's a true story. I uh, got asked by... Um, it's a strange thing. Somebody appeared on the doorstep and... Um, how the devil he knew where I was, uh, and he said, Manchester United want you. And he was connected with the club, and I couldn't believe it, and uh, I laughed it off. But um, I then was contacted by uh, Martin Edwards, I think it was, from Manchester United, uh, and uh, I sat and thought about it, obviously, and I brought it up with my chairman, and they, the chairman, uh, he had a quick board meeting in Southampton, and he said, we don't want you to go. You know, we, you're not leaving. I was on a contract as well. And I think, summing that up, and don't forget, as a family, we had moved from Tyneside to Sheffield to Doncaster to Grimsby to Southampton, and this would have meant another upheaval uh, going up to Manchester, and we've got three kids, I mean, totally married, and we've got nine grandchildren now and a couple of great-grandchildren. But in those days, it would have meant an upheaval at a vital time for them in their schooling. So all in all, in our experience of moving, um, and I turned it down. I could have gone. And I, I think I recommended Ron Atkinson to them. Uh, I knew Ron well. Looking back, should I have gone... Uh, on paper, yes, you should have done because that would have been the, the highest achievement ever to manage a club like that. On the other hand, Southampton had been wonderful to Anne and me and our family. Um, they stood by me when I got relegated and uh, they let me manage everything from top to bottom. Let me start three places um, it cost them to pay rentals, etc. you know, for gymnasiums where they train. Having said that, they got their money back a bit with the likes of Alan Shearer and other players who came through that and were sold on for lots and lots of millions of pounds. The Wallace brothers got money in, you know. So they, it had been a very, very good club and, and we were comfortable here. And... Um, it wasn't like you're looking over your shoulder all the time, like it would be these days at any club you're at now. Uh, there's very few managers stay at one club as long as we do. That's very true. Um, Sir Alex Ferguson, Arsene Wenger, probably the last true managers that will stay at a club yeah. for, for that long again. Um, something else I want to ask you about, Laurie, especially with Southampton. You signed two, you had many legendary players, but you signed Alan Ball, World Cup winner, and also Kevin Keegan. What were they like to work with, and just how good were they to manage? Well, Alan Ball was a total legend in the game because of the World Cup, and um, I forget the exact detail, but I, I, I realised that he was ready to leave. Arsenal were letting him go, and um, I jumped in. And I got him to come down, and 
Arsenal down to Southampton to see me, and there was lots of other clubs apparently wanted them. And um, yeah, I remember <laughs> the little office I had at the Dell was upstairs, and he came up the stairs on his own to see me, and I walked around the desk, and he put his hand out, and I walked past him, and I locked the door. And I came back, shook his hand, and I sat down. And he said, what do you do that for? I said, well, you're not, you're not leaving until you sign. And we had a laugh, and uh, we had a chat, and I told him what the club was about, what we hoped to do, and he said, give me a pen. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, and um, he came down, and he lit the place up. He was not just good on the pitch, and this is where it's important to a manager, he was important in the dressing room. Everybody in the dressing room admired him, acknowledged him. And you see, when you've got... I had a team, eventually, with all these in, like Alan, like the ones you've mentioned, I could only get them at the end of their careers, when they were cheaper. And their legs had gone, really. But I put old heads together with young legs. And like the Letizias, the Shearers, the Wallace Brothers and all that, that type of youngster coming through and they needed advice, not just in training from the staff and me and the, it was the players who were with and, uh, and also when your staff are not in the dressing room, they were good by helping youngsters out in there as well, telling them what they could do differently, you know, and what would help them. And Alan was outstanding like that and he was one of the most popular People are nicest, nicest fellows. He loved football. He loved football. Away from it all, he, he liked a little pint or two now and again. He, he liked to go with Mitch Shannon. Well, big pals, those two. Liked to go to races now and again. I knew all of that. And uh, they knew how far to go. And um, it was a great, great, great atmosphere and a great time with them. In terms of... Um, Tommy Doherty, you mentioned what he was like when you beat Manchester United in the final. Another cup final you played, yes. you, you you managed was the '79 League Cup final when you you took Southampton to play Forest and not only Forest but Brian Clough's Forest. I mean, what was that like and what yeah, was Brian yeah. Clough like as a person? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I should have mentioned Kevin Keegan for you as well. There, I forgot that. But do you want me to do that now, Kevin? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, well. Well, you're talking about Alan Ball. I mean, we already had, he joined the club and Mick Channon was there and they, they were, knew each other, having played for England together. And then I read one day where Kevin Keegan was possibly leaving Hamburg. He, he played, made his name at Liverpool, legend there, won lots of things and gone one of the first English players to go abroad. And um, he finished at Hamburg and he was outstanding there. He'd actually won what is it called, a Ballon d'Or or something, a yep. European Player of the Year, he twice, I think. That's how big he was, no good. And uh, I, I read, he may be moving and leaving. And I thought, aye, aye, I wouldn't mind having him here. Uh, and then I, I rang Liverpool. And their secretary was a man called Peter Robinson. The two top men in English football on that side of it, and the office side of it, were Ken Fryer at Arsenal and Peter Robinson at Liverpool. And... They were gentlemen and they were brilliant at what they did. Uh, both members of the board eventually, uh, legends in their own way. 
and I throw the pin out. Have I got on well? But just a general chat and everything. Oh, how are you doing? I haven't seen you for a while. I said, I said by the way, I said, uh, I see that Keegan may be moving. And I'm coming back to you, will he? Because you see, I knew sometimes a club would put a clause in. If a player, a top player left, they would put a clause in. If he was to leave the club he was then going to in the future, they would have first shout. And uh, I so I dropped it in casually just quizzed him, didn't give any, you know, idea that we were thinking about it. And he said, no, 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 you wouldn't be coming back here. I said, all oh, right, fine. Yeah. Anyway, all the best, Peter. I put the phone down. I went, yeah, great, you know. I then had to find out a number. I couldn't ask Peter because he would have suspected something. I don't know how the devil I got a number, but I did. And um, he came on the phone. And I mean, although you never meet these people, you, you, in the game it's a little family type thing, isn't it? You've all heard of each other. And you um, knew I was manager at Southampton. And ironically, when I was manager up at Doncaster, I mean, he only lived up the road at Scunthorpe and, and whatever. So we all remember those days. We had a bit of a general chat. And I said, Kevin, um, you know, just how are you getting on, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I don't know what bit of patter but uh, I, I think I put the phone down and then I rang him again oh no I'll tell you what it was I said um, we had just moved into a, a different house the house I'm in now it, it, was, it, it was being built and the man doing it had said look that wall up there I've got an idea to put a clock on that wall uh, some special it wasn't a clock it was some special thing I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, you, you can only buy them abroad. I said, whereabouts? He said, Germany. I said, Germany? Whereabouts? He said, Hamburg. Oh, I said, give me the detail. Right? So that's when I rang Kevin, and I said, look, is there any chance if I order one of these, you could bring it back with me when you're playing for England? Oh, I'll do that for you. Like, you know, so put the phone down. Then I rang him again. I don't know how long after. Just a general chat, and then eventually, uh, gradually, on the second or third chat, uh, how are you getting on? How, you know, have you been able to get one of those things from it? And I said, tell you what, you know, when you, if you are you thinking about moving? And he said, yes. You've been there long enough, and he's ready to move. Oh, I said, um, coming back here, maybe? And he wasn't sure where he was going to go, but he said, yeah, could be. And I don't know how long it was, whether it was that call or another call. And I dropped it in. I said, hey, why don't you come and play here? I said, um, you know, we'd won the cup as well, obviously, then. And um, and I said, you know, you've got a couple of fellas here in the dressing room. You know quite well, Nick Channing, Alan Ball, because he played with England with them. And uh, I left it at that. I just dropped it in. You know, um, I, I, that was the same call as I was organising and went to see him. He was bringing the the clock or whatever it was. Like England had a game at Wembley. And, and I, I arranged um, to meet him when he was coming in two or three days before the game. And I arranged to meet him at uh, the hotel he was going to be staying in. So... Uh, I went on that day, 
And, but I haven't told anybody at the club, even though this had been going on for a month or two. But I had to tell somebody as the chairman, and uh, they couldn't believe it. And uh, he had a he had a fixed transfer fee, and I forget what it was. And it wasn't a lot. It wasn't a big amount of money. Uh, but then the director who did finances on the board was a neighbour of ours as well, and he he looked after my salary and the players' salaries and all of that. He's an accountant in the town. And I, so I, I rang him up, went to see him, and I said, listen, strictly, strictly between you and me, and I told him the story. And he was amazed. And I said, right, I've got a meeting with him. Do you want to come with me? So we drove up to London together. We went. Um, Kevin turned up. Nice little chat, introduced him, did a small talk and everything. And um, I said, you know, Kevin, we're a good club. Uh, love to have you. Um, and uh, he's looking at me and he said, have you got a contract? And I was shocked. I went, pardon? He said, yeah, have you got a contract? And the, <laughs> the, 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 the director, being an accountant, typical, he said, yes. He opened his briefcase and he pulled a, he pulled a, a contract out, which I never dreamt he would have, but I never asked him to bring it. And Kevin signed a blank contract. Huh. And then I left it to him and the accountant at a later stage to talk about wages, salaries, and all that. Because whatever he got, you were going to get back double with the increase in gates and everything, you know. And um, on the two days later, I went to Wembley to see that game. I'm sitting up there in the stand, and I'm looking at him on the pitch. He was captain of England, I think, at the time. And I'm the only one in the whole ground, 100,000, and I'm sitting looking, he's playing for me. <laughs> because he wasn't coming straight away. It was a month or two after that. And we kept it secret. He went back to Hamburg. And eventually, um, he was leaving. They knew he was leaving at the end of the season. And he must have told them where he was coming to because I arranged for the media. I rang a, an old, one of the old media who was number one writer on the sun, I said, right, um, Monday, turn up at the Potter's Heron Hotel and tell all your mates to come, ring all of them round and tell them to come. He said, what for? I said, I'm not telling you. If you miss it, you'll kick yourself. And in those days, you see, the media all had a Monday off with all the games were on a Saturday, not Friday and Sundays and all that. And... I said, tell them, and he knew it was genuine. And all the top media turned up at this hotel, mumbling and grumbling that they had their day off ruined. And um, I got nine players at Saddam the day off. And I told two of them, I said, Mick Channing and Anna Ball, I want you to come to the Potter's Heron at one o'clock or whatever it was. Why? I said, I'll tell you when you get there. And uh, they weren't too happy because it was a day off. There was a top table, I put those two on it. The chairman, who then, of course, knew, he came, and it was the biggest moment of his life for him. And um, I said to Kevin a few days before, who's your agent? He, he had an agent called Harry Swales, quite famous. You may remember him. He was also agent for Ryan Giggs later on. Yep. And he had his moustache, which went right along and all the way down past his chin. And... Uh, he was a character. 
And I rang him. He lived up in Leeds, and Kevin had had him in England, and he kept him when he, even when he went to Germany. I said, Harry, sit down, and I told him what was happening. Kevin hadn't told him anything. I said, right, I need somebody to meet Kevin at the airport, so I'm the airport, and that's what he did. He met the plane, and the plane was a private plane hired by Hamburg, and he was accompanied by the commercial manager, who was actually, it wasn't Beckenbauer, but it was that level, a famous player, and they hadn't told us all. And now, I mean, everybody has a camera now, but he got off that private plane, Harry met him, and the three of them got in Harry's car, came down to the hotel at the given time, tapped on the door, my chairman got up, went to the door, opened it, in walked the lady with a baby in her arms, followed by Kevin Keegan and his agent. There was a gasp from the media, about 20 or 30 of them all done, and they stood up and applauded. And then he came and sat next to me, and um, I said, you've just seen my latest signing. And they couldn't believe it. Loads and loads of questions, and then they ran to the telephones, and it was out all, all over the place. And um, that's how he arrived. And that was one of the biggest signings uh, ever. And, of course, these days, it would have been out long, long before the, even the, the media knew. But it, it wasn't, and... Uh, it was terrific. That, that story, Laurie, thank you so much for that. Absolutely incredible. And and, and Brian Clough is someone else I want to ask you about. You you, you were in a cup final, uh, well, as I Brian, said. Brian was, a, Brian was a character. And bless him, a real good character. And um, you may have seen the film it, it was recently. They're going to put it on again, I think. A wonderful actor, Sheen, is it? The yeah, yeah. He did Brian in the film. And he even looked like him. And if you get the chance, see it. Um, talking about a game, some game. And it was a, particularly a game with Brian and Don Reavy. Leeds were the big, big club in those days. And uh, but Brian and me got on very well. We we're both from the northeast. Uh, I remember seeing him at one of his clubs, Hartlepool United, I think, when I first met up with him. And uh, I went into his little, little office, uh, which was it had corrugated, you know, above, and it was raining, and the water was coming through a hole, and he had a bucket underneath, and we sat the pair of us. Um, and we kept in touch over the years, and, of course, he became a total legend, very, very successful. And uh, on the day at, at Wembley, our supporters, you see, a lot of them couldn't get tickets for the Man United game, three years before, but on the day, the League Cup final, there was more tickets for the two clubs, and uh, so lots and lots of supporters were able to go, they weren't there the first time, singing and everything, but on the day, we were both in the same league, obviously, um, and it could have gone either way, and we actually were the better team in the first half, I always say we won the first half, and Brian won the second. And I think, what was the score? 3-2, I think, Three something two, like yeah. that. And um, he deserved to win it on the day. Uh, and we, at the end of the game, him and me stood, shook hands, and we stood with the trainers, looking as the players went up. Our team went up first, got their medals, went along, and then his team went up. And then he says to me, right, come on then. I said, what? He said, up we go. See, managers didn't go up. 
And he said, we're going up there in bloody steps, he says. I followed him. <laughs> up we went. And uh, when we got to the top level, everybody along the front row were looking to the right, clapping, watching the cup go round. So he kept going along. Hello, hello, how you doing? Hello, nice to see you. And, uh, <laughs> and we got to the middle bit. And, of course, the man who presented the cup was a gentleman from UEFA, or FIFA, foreign man. He looked at the pair of us, and he was looking. The league chairman was a man called Alan Hardacre, a real tough guy fella. And he was scowling at the pair of us, uh, muttering away. And he, 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 he put his hand under the bench, and he pulled out two boxes, gave them to the little fella who had been presenting the medals, and he gave Cluffy one. Cluffy shook his hand and said, well done, young fellow. You've done a bloody good job today. Keep it going and have a good trip home. And one of them, uh, he, he got a muttering from Hardegg as he walked by. I got a box as well. We both went down to the pitch, opened the box, and they were both empty, nothing in. <laughs> and they looked up at Hardegg and Hardegg put his thumbs up. <laughs> Eventually, I think they both got a medal, but the clubs had to get them done. And um, that was the day, day and he, he won that, and uh, sadly passed away far too early, but he was an out-and-out character, and um, if you get a book about him or watch that film, it, it really tells you everything. He uh, commanded the dressing rooms, he had nicknames for the players, he told them exactly what he thought about them, but they loved him really, and... Uh, I signed the goalkeeper many years later, Peter Shilton, who played in that game against us. And Peter Shilton has got more caps than any other English. I think he's got 125 caps. He's on the dinner circuit these days. He's getting on, obviously. And uh, he used to tell me about Cluffy as well. And um, he was different, put it that way, but, but brilliant. Looking back in your time at Southampton over the piece, we've talked about the fact two cup finals a promotion, challenging Liverpool for the title. You mentioned earlier Sunderland. Ultimately, you go there and it's very tough and you mentioned it's a big regret of yours. What made the job so difficult? The, the boardroom. Simple, the boardroom. Um, the, I didn't realise, because I don't forget, I've been used to a wonderful, wonderful group of directors who were oldie, oldie gentlemen. They brought a couple of younger directors in as well follow on from them and it was run smoothly and, and very very nice and wonderful atmosphere in there uh, board meetings cup of tea afterwards and all getting together um, and they loved the club and they never interfered with the football side they always backed the manager and I went up there and I couldn't believe after one or two board meetings there was um, fighting in the boardroom there was one director in particular uh, who was real rough and ready, and he he, rep he thought he represented the man on the terrace. The chairman owned garages and everything, Tom Cowley. He was a very um, big market man, and he spoke a bit more posh than the others. And the, the battle was between the, the two of them, and I couldn't believe it, listening in the... Because I was in the whole board meeting, and uh, things would be talked about, and he would... He would shout at the chairman and he'd swear and he said, well, I don't know. And he'd go on and on and on. And um, the chairman would literally finish and he'd turn to the secretary, who was a bag of nerves, and he'd say, don't put that in the minutes. 
right? That would make them even more annoyed. Then they get on to the next subject. Same sort of thing again. Don't put that in the minutes. In other words, not repeating or recording the other fellow's comments. And then uh, right at the end of the meeting, um, he said, right, uh, that's it. And he got up, uh, the, the, the loudmouth one got up, and as he was going out the door, he turned around and he gave a right mouthful of language and that to the chairman. And the chairman turned around and said, he said, put that in the minutes. <laughs> and I sat there. I could not believe it. And uh, and then the other thing that he did, this fella, uh, I had taken on a club, which it was the, the dressing room, the football side wasn't right. There was a few wrongings in there compared to what I've had. And um, I brought other youngsters in trying to do the similar to what I'd done in Southampton. Um, I, I knew it was going to take a long time to sort this out because, you see, players are on contract. You can't just give them a week's notice. You had to live with them. And I knew it would take a long time. But, you see, I had a big name going back up there having done the things you said. And... Um, the, the supporters were fabulous supporters, they still are, but they thought things would change automatically and I would win, win, win. And I wasn't. I wasn't doing it. And then, um, with all the troubles in the boardroom, the and what was happening in the games, the supporters didn't know that. And then they turned on me and they turned on the chairman. Uh, they, oh, the chairman, he, he was so upset. At and, um, and another one took over. And one day, him and I both came out after a game, and our cars had been scratched outside. So things were really, really going badly. And um, the the dressing room wasn't right. I couldn't sort that out in the time I had. Uh, and it finished up. Uh, it was a total loss from all sides. And... Um, I just, I, I agreed to leave. I agreed to leave. And because the new chairman basically had a chat with him. Uh, and I, 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 my thing was, I'm going to battle this out. Stick together, we'll win. Don't worry, I'll turn it around. And he, he basically said, well, I'm sorry. If you don't leave, I'll leave. And I remember that. And uh, so I just resigned. I resigned. Following... So it wasn't a very happy time at all. And, uh, I needed more time, put it that way, but you, you can't tell the man on the terrace that because they think um, you know you should win more. Well, as you say, that's very true. Fans want everything instantly, even 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 then. And following Sunderland, you get involved with England with the under twenty ones, as well as the senior setup with Graham Taylor. What was it like being involved with England? Was that something that was a real pleasure? Well, I left um, so that, uh, Sunderland rather in the middle of the season, and uh, um, uh, the media took me on again. I, I had been I'd done television a lot when I was at Southampton. Bobby Charlton and me were the panel for BBC. Uh, I mean, I did I forget how many World Cups we did. Nineteen seventy-four was the first one I was on the panel. Seventy-four, seventy-eight, eighty-two. Uh, and then the next World Cup was 86. That was the year after, well, when I went to Sunderland, I think. Yeah, I left Sunderland in 85. And then um, 
by 1990, of course, I was a free agent then, but I was I did some games, England games before that, so I was back on TV. And um, that really saved me because I was still involved with the game and uh, I wasn't looking necessarily to jump back into management, but in the meantime, I was still at my house down in Southampton and the the board asked me to join the board. And that's what happened there. That's how I got back into the club at Southampton, uh, coupled with media work, you know. In terms of the media work, as you say, you're enjoying that, you're involved in that. And, and as I mentioned there with England, what was it like being involved with the national team? Uh, sorry, yeah, with England, um, because I was doing media, I went to a game abroad <clears throat> to cover it and um, sat there with Graham Taylor. And Graham was doing media that day, but he'd been rumoured to become the England manager. And because we were sat next together, it cropped up. And I said, is, is that true, right? And he said, yes. And he said, look, while we're together, he said, if I do take it on, would you want to join me? And I said, well, smashing, yeah, let me know. And um, that's what happened. He became England manager. And I don't know how long after one or two, he approached me and I became what you would call assistant manager. I think my title was manager of England B in England under 21. Because in those days, you had a B team. I still think it's not a bad idea. The B team were players who were too old for the under 21 uh, and were on the edge of England's first team, but not quite getting a regular game. But it gave them a chance to play international football. And you could see a lot of players are brilliant at that club, but not necessarily as good when you take them away. Playing with a strange group of other players. And the B team was able to sort that out. And I mean, in the period we were together, I think it was about three, three and a half years, Graham was manager. Because when Graham resigned, I, I could have stayed on. But in principle, I resigned as well because he took me in and I went out with him. But in that period, we had eight B games. I mean, top games, you know, foreign countries, eight B games, and we won six and drew two. But that wasn't the important thing. The important thing was seeing players come through at international level, getting them used to the different referees and going abroad, you know, playing against other foreign teams. So I did that. And I also... The same managed the under twenty one team, and I remember the one success I had in my time there was the Toulon tournament, which is very very famous, a fantastic tournament for under twenty one levels. It's like a mini World Cup or mini European Cup finals, and um, in Toulon in France, and we won it one year. And a lot of those lads, uh, looking back, probably Shearer, McManaman. Loads of names, they all made their way into the first team eventually. So uh, that was very satisfying as a manager to see them progress. But I enjoyed that period and uh, uh, I felt sorry for Graham. He didn't have the best of times. He, the, the first tournament he had to qualify for was probably the 1990 World Cup and, and he didn't. And then, the, or vice versa, European 
anyway, we didn't qualify, and that was it. He, he had to resign. Uh, I could have stayed on. I maybe would have even got the job. I was told by one director afterwards I should have stayed. Um, they had me lined up, but I didn't, and uh, I think it was the right thing at the time. What was Graham like as a man? Obviously, sadly passed away, and a legend of Watford, as we all know. I mean, just what was he like as a man and to work with? Well, Graham and, Graham and I had similar backgrounds. Neither one of us were outstanding footballers, but we had been in coaching much earlier because of that, and we'd both been successful at lower levels. I mean, don't forget, he had managed, I think, was it Lincoln? He came from Scunthorpe and he managed Lincoln and then, and if you look it up, I think he won the league there. He did well at Watford. Um, he got to a cup final with Watford. I remember being at the cup final. I was on TV. Afterwards, I was walking along a passageway uh, towards the boardrooms or whatever. And I saw a man sitting on his own and he was crying. And it was Elton John, who was still is, I think, president, isn't he? Or chairman, chairman or yeah. president of Watford. And um, but Graham did a great job at Watford, and that of course got him the England job. But um, he was a, he was a more uh, he wasn't a Bill Shankly, put it that way, or a Cluffy. He was more sort of educational type, and uh, um, yeah, he was he was a nice man, a very nice, a good family man, and terrible, terrible, terrible when he passed away. Uh, but I think it really, really hurt him badly that he didn't succeed at England, you know. That's very true, and, and as you say, not just Graham, many managers have, have tried with England, and for whatever reason, it's not worked out. Following there, um, Laurie, you, you're back at Southampton in a sort of director of football type role, um, working under Rupert Lowe. Graham Soonis was there at the time. What was that like? Because I know Lowe was a, a divisive figure. Well, I, I think I was on the board then, and then um, they brought Graham in. I forget whose place he took, but and this fellow, Rupert Lowe, has come from nowhere. I mean, uh, he hadn't got a bloody clue about football. He was, uh, he'd been to a public school type of fella. He was a rugby man when I looked up his records at one time. I think, no, I think he's in. He got into Parliament, the European Parliament or something like that. I don't know what the hell he does now, but he wasn't from this area. He came from out the blue. and How he got in, I can't remember. But And he took over, and um, Graham Souness just could not work with him, with that type of fella. And uh, Graham, Graham um, had me there. I was already there. And him and me got out ever so well. And they, they gave me a title. It said I was already a, a director. They just called me director of football. Well, every club's got one now, I think. But I think I was the first one to have that title because of that. And I, I said to Graham, look, uh, I won't be interfering with you. If you want me over the training ground anytime, let me know. He said, you can come up whenever you want. And I said, look, when there's a board meeting on, because in those days you used to have board meetings regularly, weekly even, I said, come down early, come up to my office, because I had an office at the ground, he was up at the training ground, and I said, let's go through what you want to bring up, 
and I'll back you up. And um, that's what we did. And we've gone ever so well. But he couldn't get on with him. And I think the next fellow came Cortese, whether he was similar to Lolo had already gone and hadn't got a clue about football. Um, and we're interfering really. But I think it was Lolo still there. And, and Graham said he couldn't do it. And he, he resigned. He walked. He walked. And as I said earlier, because of that, uh, in principle, I, I, I resigned as well. And Graham rang me and he told me off. He said, I didn't know you were going to do that. I said, no, I, I, I can't work with a fellow like that either. But it's a pity because Graham um, is excellent, terrific record as a player and would have been perfect at that time for Southampton. Absolutely. And a manager who was as fierce as he was as a player and, and achieved a lot in the game as he showed over in Turkey and among many other places. From there, you take the Northern Ireland job. What was that experience like? Is it something that you you look back on and think, what could have been? Well, yeah, I mean, I took that on. I was I was invited to sort of job. I was interviewed and I went and... Um, uh, the, the trouble was, and it still is in a way, I realised very quickly. I mean, I, I appointed two legends, Pat Jennings, the goalkeeper, and Joe Jordan, another one of your lads, who Joe didn't play for Ireland, he played for Scotland, but he played for me at Southampton. And Pat, I knew very, very, he total legend, still is in Ireland. And uh, you, you couldn't have got a better staff, really. And everybody was excited. And I think my first game was a friendly, would you believe, down in Dublin against the Republic, and we won. <laughs> and everybody thought that. I mean, for the North to beat the South like that. Uh, terrific but the longer I was there I realised I'm looking to see which players we had eligible and there wasn't very many in the top flight and uh, I said at the time in the old days when when I was our club manager a lot in the dressing room were Scotsmen right um you know, and, 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 and you had Welshmen as well. You know, two or three Welshmen, you had a bloody choir. Uh, four <laughs> or five Scotsmen, you had a fight. You had a fight. <laughs> That's what I used to say. But you count the dressing rooms then, but even more so now, how many Scots, Irish and Welsh were in the dressing rooms? In the top flight? Not many. And uh, like that then, I was shopping around in, in the clubs in the, in the top, in the first division, I could hardly get a team. And so you're going down the divisions and the lads, with due respect to them, uh, that were in the top flight, weren't necessarily at the big clubs and they weren't outstanding players, you know. So you, you really didn't have your odds on not to win more games than those to win. And uh, it just didn't go right. You know, we, we weren't good enough. Simple as that. And, uh, I mean, as manager, you take the blame. But... Uh, Everybody knew, the board knew as well, the directors knew that um, very difficult to win anything at that level. Something I'm, I'm desperate to also talk to you about, Laurie, is I spoke to Adrian Bevington recently and he was telling me all about you taking a, a, a you going out to Afghanistan and organising a match and organising activities out there. I mean, just what was that like for you and what was that experience like? Because not many people can say they've done that. Well, that came out of the blue. I was asked by 
somebody from the government if I would go, and I went with Gary Mabbott, who was a legend at Tottenham in his day, still works at the club, Gary, lovely, lovely lad. And um, the idea was that the, the governments around Europe had wanted to put a football match up on, in Kabul um, to, re, to get football reintroduced in Afghanistan because the war had stopped it altogether. And um, the European government said, agreed that it would be the English government would make the decision. So they contacted the FA, and between them, the government and the FA, they nominated me. And uh, I don't know whether it was me that got Gary, or they did. And I agreed to go. We were, it was a bit of a secret type of thing. We had to report to an airport up in the Oxford area. It was a military airport. We got on a plane with a number of soldiers who had been on leave or going back to Afghanistan. The plane was carrying tanks and wagons all the way down the middle. There was little plastic seats down the side and we sat in them. <laughs> and I forget how long the flight was, but we were there and we landed in Kabul. We were picked up at the airport by little jeeps and things like that. And on the back of every jeep was a machine gun. Uh, we were driven to, um, I forget where we stayed now, whether it was, it was a little hotel, I think. And um, the, the game was going to be a, a forces game against Afghans. And um, it was going to be at the stadium, which was the international stadium in the old days, before the war, and uh, they'd had to reopen it for this game. And uh, we had a two or three days to train. I was nominated to train the Afghans, and Gary was going to take the forces team. And I laughed with him. I said, oh, well, yours will be fit, because when I saw mine, half of them hadn't had a proper meal, I think, for weeks and weeks. And um, I, we both trained on the same pitch, he was at one end, I was at the other. <clears throat> there was, they were cleaning the pitch up the day we got there um, because it had been used by the, oh, what do they call the, I forget their name now. Who? The Taliban, was it? Taliban, the yeah. Taliban. They yeah, were yeah. the ones that were governing the country. And they had used the pitch, making different people prisoners, packing them in the dressing rooms. They were broken to bits when we got there. They were cleaning the pitch up and they found human bones on the center circle. And there was pictures of people hanging off the crossbars. That's what the Taliban had been doing. Jeez. So obviously the war had changed that. The celebration was to have a football match. The crowds outside on the day of the game, you wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe. They couldn't all get in. They were overpiled in the ground. And um, But in the training, some of mine could play, but they were knackered. You know, they weren't fit. And I said to Graham, I said, you know, I might not want to be able to run the second half. His were fit as fleas because they were all... And it wasn't just English, British. I mean, the, the, ref, the goalkeeper was a German, I think. The, the fullback was... French and all that sort of thing. There were a collection of 
the best footballers in the forces out there, and uh, proper referee, an international referee, and as I say, the crowd was unbelievable. When we came out, it was like coming out of Wembley, and then we lined up and they played the national anthem, and um, they played the national anthem, and uh, we were looking at the crowd, um, and they were crying. They were crying. And uh, you know how they normally send birds up in the air? Uh, somebody had sent thrown pigeons up. And, of course, the crowd were looking to see where they landed. And they were grabbing the pigeon and screwing their neck because they were going to eat them later on. <laughs> um, and the game went... It was a good game, very good game. And the, the forces won. It wasn't by loads of goals, but it was incredible. And that was the start of the football again because along with us came a couple of fellas... Uh, well, David Davis, from who worked at the FA then, and his job was to get the officials of the football over there. While we were training at the football ground, he was organising meetings, and they reorganised the football league in Afghanistan. And uh, obviously, it was still be going from strength to strength. But that was an amazing experience, and uh, I forget how many days we were there. Then we came back. We flew back with. Those of soldiers that were going on leave and wagons and everything. When we landed back at the airport in England, the the crew said, "Can we have a picture taken?" And while we were waiting, lined up for the cameras, um, the captain just casually said, uh, "Just to let you know, chaps, when we took off in Kabul, the plane was shot at three times, <laughs> and he hadn't told anybody until wow. we landed. The crew knew, but we didn't." Uh, but that was an amazing experience, and uh, uh, I'll never forget it. And it was an honour to be asked to do that. And Gary Marbot and he became very good friends, and Gary is a wonderful, wonderful lad. In terms of the game now, Laurie, you've, we've talked there about your incredible career, the success at Southampton. We've talked about all the other challenges and, and tribulations you've you've faced as a manager, the, 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 the good players, the great players you signed, the youth prospects you helped develop, those you've came up against. What's your opinion of football now in, in the modern era, um, in the last sort of decade? What's your opinion of the game we're watching now? Um, well, generally, I mean, in, in, in one word, it's a business now. Money, money, money is flooded in because of television, obviously. That is why, in the first place, it attracted foreign players, foreign... I don't call them managers now, I call them coaches. I'm not, it's not an insult or anything, because I look at them, um, the coaches, and that's what they do. I think they come over, they coach the first team, that's their job. Unlike our day... People like the ones you've mentioned, Cluffy, myself, and the others, we we ran the club from top to bottom. You know, I'd, I'd be with the first team in the morning, and I'd want to do a session with the kids in the afternoon, etc., etc. Some of them might do that. I don't know. They might be a bit interested, but their main job is to coach the first team. But then the players are coming from all around the world here. Why? It's now the top flight anywhere. And it's the highest paid. And the money is there. They sign two-year, three-year contracts. And I think a lot of them do that and they pack their bag and they're off again on the move. You're not going to get a dressing room ever again like ours. 
where you've got the Mick Channons, the Letiziers, people like that, um, staff like Arsene Wenger, etc., etc., myself, Ted Bates, who are going to be there and uh, forever and ever. And the boardroom is different because they've got people in there who have bought the club. And they're not necessarily football people or sports people. They, they've got businesses. And they look at the club. I mean, Salam Football Club, when it first stopped from being a, a board of directors, it became uh, a club that had been sold to someone. It was sold to a gentleman called Liebherr, Mr. Liebherr. I think they were from Switzerland or somewhere like that. And they they owned all the cranes and the docks all around, all around Europe, I think. Big cranes. And uh, Mr. Liebherr bought um, the club. Uh, and do you know how much he paid? Not sure. 12 million. And he put 20 million in, 12 to buy it, and 8 to run it. And sadly, the gentleman died. I mean, I never met him. I wasn't involved, obviously, then. And um, this was back in 19... When was it? 19... Whatever. Um, and uh, no, it wouldn't be that. Anyway, whatever it is, you can look it up. And he sadly died. And every, his family and that thought, everybody thought, you know, the family would go. But, um, and uh, his daughter, the eldest of, I think he had two daughters and a son, and Catherine Lieber, the eldest, she came into the club and took it on. But after a year, um, she surprised I think a lot of people, because she sold 80% of the club to a gentleman, um, and she sold 80% for 210 million. And she kept 20%. She said she wanted to keep that to make sure the club went forward in the right way. Now, the gentleman she sold 80%, it was Mr. Gao, I think G-A-O, and he's from China. And he, I don't know what his business is over there, but that's what's happening in football. Now, you have people coming in who I think see it as an investment, you know, and I mean, good luck to them. That's what they do, and they're doing it all around. If you look at all the other clubs as well, um, that's happening. And that is one of the differences. Foreign owners, foreign players, foreign coaches, more and more money involved coming in, going out, salaries, uh, shorter contracts, pick up the money and go. Footballers now can do a few years and become millionaires. They've all got agents, agents galore, much more than they used to be. And if the agents are good, they get a good payment. Apparently, I couldn't believe it, they get a share of the transfer fees. Uh, I, and nowadays, the odd one had an agent like when you sign them, but the player look after the agent, not the club. But now I think the club has to pay the player and the agent and the club he's coming from. But uh, if the agent has done his job properly and looked after the player, made sure he put his money away for retirement, because free football finishes at about 30, 35-year-old. Not many are playing after that. 
And um, in my day, every one of those players you mentioned, even the big names, Kevin Keegan, Mick Channon, all of them, they all had to get a job. They all had to get a job afterwards. Mick, of course, racing stables, but it was a job, and he's still working at it. Kevin, out on television and on the speaking circuit, he still does it. But they all had to get jobs. Nowadays, a lad can finish at 35 and be a multimillionaire. I think that's not right, not a good thing. You know, you should have to carry on doing something. But that's the change, that's the difference, that's what you asked about. Absolutely, and it's incredible how it has changed, as you've said. The last question I've got for you, Laurie, is what advice would you give to any young manager in football now? Um, I think my advice to a manager would be get to know your players, shut the dressing room door, find out. You see, I, I would have a rascal if you could play I would never have a villain if he was the best player in the club. Every dressing room has a rascal or a villain. Find out which is which, who they are, keep an eye on them, have a talk with them. Um, get closer to your players. Uh, find out who will always give you 110%. Uh, find out those that don't. Find out why. See if you can improve them. If you can't, get rid of them. Um, managing is different to coaching coaches at one time could coach but they weren't very good at managing most of the managers I knew could do both they could manage and coach and that was that's the biggest thing and um, I would like managers to be able to talk to older managers in our day I mentioned Lillish Hall a while ago, that was like a, a place up in the Midlands. It, it was a college, a sports college, I think it was. And in the summer, at the end of a football season, they would have get-togethers a week long of coaches and football managers. Other weeks would be cricketers, other weeks golf, people like that. So when the football week was on, my manager, when I was a young coach at Sheffield Wednesday, Alan Brown, made me and Ian McFarlane, another fella from up your way, we were the two coaches, made us go to Lillishaw. And um, at first we grumbled, oh dear me, but what are we? And it was lovely because you mixed and mingled with top people. I remember one day Bill Shangley, Bob Paisley, Joe Fagan, uh, Chris Evans, they all arrived, Roy Evans rather, they all arrived together. And oh, we were in all of them when they walked in. They came. Um, other days, there'd be big names. Cluffy might turn up, you know. And you, you, you did coaching. They had kids in. You did coaching sessions with them. And you learned you had people from abroad coming over and mixed and mingled. But the best times were at the end of the day when you had your meal together and a couple of drinks. And you learned and you picked up and you got to know senior managers. You could ring them and you knew who you could listen to and who would help you. After every game, even now, I would hope it happens, the home team manager shakes hands, see you in me room, and they always have five minutes, ten minutes or whatever, having a drink together, glass of wine, a cup of tea, cup of coffee, whatever, a glass of beer with the two managers and their staff, to get their staff in. Because you see, in our day, 
on the bench, there was me, a trainer, and a physio. That was it. Um, nowadays, there's not many staff. I couldn't tell you what their titles are and whatever. And there's loads and loads of substitutes. But I still think the manager should get together at the end of a game, mix and mingle. And it would be good if they could gather once in a week, a few days at the end of a season to do what I've just said for the lower division managers to mix and mingle and learn. And um, But I, I, I think even if people who were ex-managers went to the training grounds and made them welcome there to go up and, and, and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee after the training with the manager and the staff. Um, I mean, I would like that. I would like that to go even now. I mean, we've just been made ambassadors. Whether that enables me to wander up to the training ground, I wouldn't go unless the manager invited me. But it would be nice to go up, have a look and see. And I think, especially, I mean, so that manager, I'm talking, I'm thinking about it now. He's from Austria originally, Ralph Hassenhull. He's popular. He seems a nice fella. I've met him very, very briefly at a charity thing. Even him sitting with me, listening to what I've been talking to you about now, he might like to listen to that. I'd like to listen to his career, and then he could he could sit with the door shut and trust a man who's been through it and done it. And I think that would help managers. If you know anybody in your area who used to be a manager, invite them in, have a cup of tea with them, and have a chat, and let them look at your training as you're doing it. You might even have a comment to make the after that if you wanted. But it would make that manager feel part of it again because, you see, it's such a, when a player leaves football, they miss it. They miss it. Don't worry. When a manager leaves who's been in the game a hell of a lot longer than the players, they really miss it as well. And I mean, if anybody said to me, as they do now and again, I mean, I'm ancient now, but do you miss it? I say, not Monday to Friday, but I miss Saturdays. And, uh, and that's a fact. I'd go to the games and I sit at the back of the stand and I watch and you watch with interest. But it would be nice now and again to pop up to the training ground and I think that would help the young managers as well. Absolutely agree. And, and with guys in the game, Laurie, with your level of experience that you've been through over the years, I totally agree that mentoring younger managers that is, is the way forward and hopefully... Hopefully those at the top of the game, whether that's in the Premier League, the German League, the Italian League, can listen to that message and yeah. and do that with younger coaches. But I just want to say, Laurie, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, it's um, you've made a friend with me and you've lost a friend with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> She's been signalling to me. We've been on quite a long time. <laughs> and she needs me to do something. But no, no, seriously... I've enjoyed it and uh, it's brought a few good memories back to me. I've probably missed a few things out. I was going to tell you about Paul Gascoigne with England. Uh, we were in a restaurant one day and the waiter said, do you like scampi? He said, I like anything to do with Walt Disney. <laughs> um, one day in the medical room, he heard them say cortisone injection. And he says, are we all getting a new car? <laughs> Another day, he said he heard them say sugar diabetes, and he said, "Oh hell, I remember him. He was a boxer." Um, wow. Apart from that, there's a few more I could tell you, but never mind. 
uh, it's, I've enjoyed doing it, and uh, let me know what you do with it, and uh, you don't need an interpreter, do So we'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave, and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song. We'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave, and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song.